And I think we were the most scared, the most frightened was after she won the race and we were not paid and we knew that we had to go back to collect our money. And the first time we knew that we were going to try to collect at a time when there's 10,000 people at the racetrack because it's Kentucky Derby Day and it's the biggest day of the year at the racetrack. Mm. But we knowing that we were going to have to go back and go back alone, I think going into the bowels of that racetrack, getting duffel bags full of money. Mm. I mean, if you can imagine getting $250,000, mostly in 20s, it's about six backpacks. Mark Miami Paul, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Glad to be here, Zach. Thanks. So I actually, I wanted to start with a quote from The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I, I don't know if you've read the book, but it is a kind of a creative guide that I try to read a little bit of each morning because creativity can be a mindfuck, as I'm sure you know, writing the greatest gambling story ever told. And... The quote I want to start with is, a writer writes with his genius, an artist paints with hers. Everyone who creates operates from this sacramental center. It's our soul seat, the vessel that holds our being. So I wanted to ask you, is there an art to gambling? And what does that sacramental center feel like? What does that soul seat feel like as a gambler? Interesting question. Uh, <clears throat> you know, most gamblers tend to be younger men your age. And when this book occurred, because it's absolutely a true story in 1988, I was approximately your age. And I just think that younger people are bolder, take bigger chances, perhaps have less to lose and more to gain. Mm. And so I, at the time of my life, um, I was, I would say, a semi-professional gambler. I had, I had a real job. I was a commercial real estate broker. And, you know, so I, 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 I didn't have to make a living, thank God, gambling, which is a really important thing because if you're afraid to lose, you can't you can't really be put yourself in a position to win. But <clears throat> I traveled with um, with a gentleman named D Dino in the book, and he was the most brilliant gambler to this day I've ever met. Hmm. And <clears throat> it's it, it's it's a lifestyle, and it takes the combination of of intelligence and timing and caution, and then incredible boldness when an opportunity presents itself. So if you think of a professional gambler, you probably think of some crazy guy who's had, you know, four beers before noon and no matter what, he's betting on absolutely everything and, you know, a bit of a degenerate perhaps. Yeah. And that's might be true for a lot of losing gamblers. But if you're talking about professional gamblers, that's a different animal. And professional gamblers have to have a lot of, of cunning and they have to have a lot of intelligence and a lot of planning. And then they have to have big balls. Do ba because big balls. Uh, big bets don't come around. Yeah. Don't come around. Good bets don't come around that, that often. That's the thing. I mean, th there are certain people like yourself that have balls in the gambling arena because there there is something inside you that it takes to, you know, the, the cliche, put your money where your mouth is. Everyone wants to run their mouth. Everyone wants to say, this is never going to happen or this is a sure thing. This is a lock. And then if you ask someone to put 20 bucks on it, then they're like, oh, well, you know, 
I don't I don't think it's actually going to happen or, you know, I, I was just talking shit. I, I don't I don't actually believe what I'm saying. There's there's a beauty to placing an amount of money on the outcome of something because it is a vote yeah. for that outcome. You, you are saying this is how much I believe yeah. in the odds that I'm given for this event to to occur. Yeah, we'll see how much you really believe in something and when you have to really put, put something at risk. Yeah, um, yeah. The, <laughs> The risk side, it, it seems like the it's it's a very daunting thing to have a significant amount of money be in limbo. And that's what keeps me out of gambling for the most part. Like I, I get heart palpitations when I have thirty dollars on a you know, a March Madness game. I'm just like, oh shit, like I might I might win thirty to win uh, seventy five. I I might win uh, you know on Kansas or something like that. Like something that's you know it wouldn't be crazy if that's gonna hit. And you know the story we'll get into the odds were much more significant than that. And to have that amount uh, that amount of money riding on something, it it does take balls. Like it does take that thing to say, all right, fuck it, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Yep. So. In uh, in January of 1988, you and your friend Dino placed a $5,000 bet at 50 to 1 odds on a Philly horse named Winning Colors to win the Kentucky Derby. And I I ran through your book right here, which is the greatest gambling story ever told, a true tale of three gamblers, the Kentucky Derby and the Mexican cartel. And feel free to, to stop me at any point if, if I get something wrong, because I'm just trying to set the set the field to dive deeper into the story. Sure. So you, you place the $5,000 bet on winning colors, a Philly horse, a, a female horse, which I just learned the terminology reading your book, to win the Kentucky Derby. And if your bet hit, you and Dino would take home $250,000. Before, but yes, in 1988, in 1988, which is a lot more money in 1988 than this. Which today. I looked it up, it was six hundred seventeen thousand dollars today. Some it's like point exactly. two, something yeah. like that. <laughs> six hundred seventeen thousand two hundred dollars, which is a a pretty nice chunk of change. You, you you can place a lot of a lot of uh, March Madness bets with that. Um, tell tell me about this horse winning colors. W- what did you see in her that almost nobody else saw at the time? I will. Uh, the funny thing is, talking about the odds and winning the money, which is enough, which is make would have been a good story. We'll talk more. the The problem is that we we unknowingly made that bet in Tijuana, mm. in a little teeny racetrack called Agua Caliente, and we didn't realize it was actually owned by cartel members. <laughs> so, what makes the story really so much more exciting and true? <laughs> Is it isn't just the concept of winning six hundred thousand dollars in today's dollars, which will get our attention. Mm. It's the idea driving across the border to a rinky dinky little foreign Mexican racetrack and collecting six hundred thousand dollars in cash from the cartel and getting to the border alive. Mm. <laughs> so I, I I always think the the money was the very smallest part of this gamble. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll get we'll get into that in detail. But I always like to start with that yeah. so people understand it's like you know, it's funny for I've sold a 40, over 40,000 copies of the book. And, you know, maybe I sold 5,000 of them to horse racing fans and I sold 35,000 to, to true, to true crime fans. Cause you know, it's, you know, it's kind of got that mafia narcos thing. People say to me, like, you know, t- tell me about your book. What is it in, in an elevator speech? And I go, my book is sea biscuit meets narcos. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> yeah. got that vibe. Yeah. 
Um, the other reason that a lot of people really do love the story, um, by a lot of people, I mean a lot of women. Like um, Even now, uh, I would say that over 50% of the reviews that I get left, I usually get to see the first names of my of the people that have left mm. reviews, and I'm proud to, proud to say I've had over 2,000 reviews of my book on Amazon. And women like the story, too, because of what I'm about to tell you, which is that it's a story of a filly, a female racehorse, trying to compete against 19 colts mm. or 18 colts in the Kentucky Derby. And typically in horse racing, much like in human sports, it's very rare that a, a woman will compete head-to-head with a male. Mm. You're not going to see Serena Williams, you know, go against, you know, you know, you know the top, the top uh, tennis star of the day. You're not really likely to see a female, you know, linebacker going against Tom Brady. But in this case, you had a filly, a young three-year-old filly saying, I'm not going to race just against the girls. I'm so good that I can actually go head-to-head in the world's most famous horse racing, the Kentucky Derby, Mm. and try to beat the boys. And there was a tremendous amount of sexism, particularly in 1988. It still exists today, um, but you... You can imagine in 1988, the, the mere idea of a girl attempting to go against the boys caused, you know, all the male chauvinist pigs of the world to root against mm. her and all the women that normally maybe wouldn't give a darn about a horse race mm. becoming passionately involved. But in, in 1988 and early, late 87 and early 88, there was a filly that was dominating. She was winning her races against the other female horses, you know, by 12 lengths, 13 lengths, just blowing them away. And she was owned by Eugene Klein, who owned the San Diego Chargers, the professional football mm. team. And as we mentioned, we were young professional gamblers, and we saw an interview with Gene Klein. And they asked, he said, Mr. Klein, you own, a, uh, you own the San Diego Chargers, but you also own this amazing filly, this, this racehorse. If you could win the Kentucky Derby or you could win the Super Bowl, which one would you choose? And he said, oh. I would take the Kentucky Derby. There's at the time there's 26 NFL teams. One of us owners is going to win the the, <clears throat> the Super Bowl every year. But there's 40,000 thoroughbreds born every year. Mm. You can only run in the Kentucky Derby once. You can only run in it when you're three years old. Um, that would be the dream of my lifetime. Yeah. And we, Steve and I said, God, I wonder if he would run this filly. He's a billionaire. I wonder if he would run her in the Kentucky Derby. And then about a week later, we heard that he was very ill. And had cancer. Mm. Excuse me, not cancer. He had a heart attack. And it was his second heart attack. We said, oh, my God, we got a billionaire here. He's got the best racehorse, female racehorse on the planet. His dream's to win the Kentucky Derby. What if he puts this horse, this female, up against the Colts? Which, by the way, is it only in you know 120 years that two fillies had won uh, the Kentucky yeah. Derby in, in history. We shopped around. And we said, wow, she's, uh, she's 12 to 1 in Las Vegas. That's not bad. Uh, but then we found that she was 50 to 1 at a mm. racetrack in Tijuana. Mm. So the next thing you heard was our squealing tires hitting the road, crazy, yeah. you know, young guys um, driving to friggin' Tijuana to bet on a female racehorse to win the Kentucky Derby. And the race isn't even going to be run 
for another six months. It's a future book. So if she doesn't run in the race, we lose our yeah. money. Hey guys, this is a quick reminder that the two best ways you can support the show are by one, leaving a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is like foreplay for the algorithm because it revs it up and makes our show appear higher in searches. And number two, you can subscribe to Auxoro Premium at auxoro.supercast.com where for five bucks a month you get bonus episodes and more exclusive content. Thank you for however you choose to support the show. So I, I just wanted to to stop you for a sec. So the first inkling you had that winning colors could not only be successful, but run in the Derby was that statement by Eugene Klein, the owner who said his, you know, he had the heart yes, attacks, his health was in decline. But, and you yeah. had been tracking before that you had been tracking winning colors, statistically following the races, seeing finishes, things like that against other horses. And then with that statement of, you know, my time is limited. Eugene Klein, you know, he's probably thinking like, I want to make my mark on horse racing before I, I kick the bucket. That's what motivated you to actually make the drive down to Tijuana. Yeah. And we lived in LA. So, you know, it's about a three hour drive yeah. each way. So we went down and drank our margaritas and made our stupid bet and drove home. And we thought everything was just fine. And she continued to keep winning. Although then she actually, she did lose a race uh, against Phillies. Mm. And we're thinking, oh, crap she can't even she's already gotten defeated for the first time it was a magnificent race but she lost by a neck to a to another champion philly and we thought if she can't even beat the girls if she's sure as hell not gonna yeah. race again did anyone try to talk you out uh, of driving to tijuana before you did because you know anything anything <laughs> that seems genius looking back on it means that there were a bunch of people talking shit uh, either publicly oh everybody tells us we were yeah. everybody tells us we were yeah. crazy and and fortunate fortunately we weren't married if we were married our sensible wives would have talked us out of taking you know our hard-earned money and driving it to a little bitty racetrack in the middle of what, what was the most convincing but, argument that you heard against going down there betting on winning colors was there anyone who made you think like shit you know we, yeah, we well, shouldn't they said, do this they said they, they'll, they'll kill you for 20 dollars down there and you're talking about winning quarter million dollars and mm. then having to go back and pick up a quarter million. How are you going to get a quarter million dollars if you're crazy enough to win this 50 to mm. one bet? How are you going to get it back home in one piece? Mm. That, was a, that was a legitimate question. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you, because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes back then and trying to disconnect the cold, hard, statistical analysis of trying to bet on a horse and the emotions of a story, a, a great story, like a Philly winning the Kentucky Derby, the owner's health is in decline, you know, this might be his last shot. Were you worried about the emotions that you were feeling and parsing that from the cold, hard facts of like, this? look, this horse is... No, once the, once the bet was yeah. made, we, you know, had to just kind of be, be fans. But what happened is that she had to continue to win in order to even mm. be allowed into the Kentucky Derby. Mm. And she she lost the race against the Phillies, but then she came back um, and she raced against that same Philly again and she mm. blew her away, yeah. just dominated. And so <clears throat> she also was trained by a very, very famous gentleman. A guy recently just actually had a horse uh, in the Kentucky, a female horse in the Kentucky Derby. Very few people do this. His name is D. Wayne mm. Lucas. He's now about 80 years old. But in 1988, he was called the Hollywood trainer. He 
was handsome and he had a private jet and he wore $2,000 suits and he was, you know, maybe the, 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 the Pat Riley of uh, the Showtime Lakers. He was that ver- version of that guy, but he happened to be uh, a horse yeah. trainer. And he also was very bold and he wasn't afraid to put his horses on airplanes and try unconventional things. And he became the, the top trainer of his day by, by far. And so she continued to advance uh, and eventually she had to be tried against, she had to be run against Colts to see if she was good enough to run against Colts in order to be able to, to be allowed to be run in the mm. Derby by her, by her trainer yeah. and her owner. So a month before the Kentucky Derby, they have the Santa Anita Derby, which is at Santa Anita, and it's the California version of the Kentucky Derby. And all the best horses uh, in California and from other states all get together trying to win or do well in this race so that they can get into the Kentucky Derby. So she went against the Colts, and it was an amazing, amazing day. Normally, you go to the racetrack, and it's you know it's all grumpy old men. That day, probably 50% of the fans were females, mm. and they came out with signs, go girl, beat the bo- boys, go winning yeah. colors. And it was kind of funny. You, you, I would see the stories written in the newspaper, oh, the little filly is going to try to beat the big Colts. But the funny thing is that winning colors, who happened to be gray, was called the Amazon by people at the track. She was ginormous. Mm. She was bigger than any of the boys, any of the Colts in the race. She weighed about 200 pounds more than any of these Colts. So, you know, the the riders that don't know anything are writing about the, the frail little filly going against the Colts, and we're going... You haven't seen this girl because this girl is not frail. She's a monster. Yeah. Um, so she she went against the she went against the Colts. She wasn't favored. She was around three to one that day. And of course we were at the races, and she went out and just blew their friggin' doors off. She mm. won the the California Derby, the Santa Anita Derby, by about thirteen lengths. Wow. Eased up. Wow. And suddenly. Uh, Dino and I that were thinking, yeah, that's a long shot. Who knows if we can ever cash this bet? Suddenly we go, not only is she good enough to beat the boys, she just destroyed them. She killed them. She's going to the damn Kentucky Derby. Mm. And she's probably going to be one of the favorites. Yeah. So it suddenly became very real. But yeah, th- then something. I, I just wanted to, to, to stop for one sec just to reiterate something. So I didn't realize this before I read the book, and people may not realize this, but you had mentioned that when you bet on winning colors, this was about five or six months before the Kentucky Derby. Yes. So she is by no means guaranteed a spot in the Kentucky Derby. It's not like you're betting on the winner of the Super Bowl a month before the Super Bowl when you know who's going to be in it. There's a, you know, pretty... There were 400 horses. Yeah, there's a pretty minute chance. There's not, there's a good chance that she may not even be in the Derby. So this would be more like betting a long shot winner of the Super Bowl before the season actually starts or at the start of the season, not betting on the Super Bowl winner in in January. So that's what I just want to reiterate, that she was in no way guaranteed a spot or even close to being guaranteed at the point when you and and Dino placed the bet. She was a long shot to... She was a long shot to even be in the race. So she finally wins this race. And then we're starting to do some research. We're going, holy shit here. We actually might have to go down to Tijuana and collect a quarter million dollars. But then I ran into another guy (laughs) who was I knew from the racetrack who had actually bet um, $20,000 on her to win. 
he had he was a big gambler another professional gambler mm. in big bernie and same same odds correct him. 50 to 1 20, 20 same, odds, same odds he'd gone to tijuana same deal and but he had a million dollars to win so mm. now we're teamed up with a guy that has to figure out how to get a million dollars out of a Tijuana racetrack, and we have to figure out how to get two hundred fifty thousand. But you know, everybody said, "I should probably won't win anyway." There's, you know, there's nineteen other Colts that are going to kick her ass. You're, you're not going to win, so yeah. just relax. Don't and, and for don't for people it. winning a million dollars in nineteen eighty eight with today's inflation is now one trillion dollars in twenty twenty. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a it's a it's a shit ton of money. It is. It's a lot of money. So we start hearing, and then we start hearing all these rumors that the racetrack is going to go bankrupt, that they're not, that they ceased racing and they, they're doing terribly financially. So we start doing research and we find out that the racetrack is owned by a guy named Jorge Rome. Mm. By the way, his father, I'm sure most people watch the TV show on Netflix, Narcos. Mm. His father is featured in Narcos as the governor of Mexico, which you... Uh, which of all of Mexico, and his son was gifted the racetrack from this gentleman, Rome, uh, who was the governor of Mexico, and apparently he was very deeply related with the cartel, etc. Mm. Um, although, so he doesn't kill me, he has not been convicted, he has not gone to jail for being a member of the Mexican cartel. Which makes you even uh, more, a part of the, well. more a part of the cartel, dodging the uh, allegations and convictions. It's, uh, it's very... Whatever. Uh, yeah, whatever. I, I, hope he, I hope he lets it go even now, 30, yeah. 32 years there, later. There you go. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, he, we find this out, so now we're going, holy moly, we got to figure out how to get paid. People are going, they're not going to pay you. And if they... Wouldn't it be easier just to kill you than to give you a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars? And even if they do pay you, they're gonna they're gonna pay some guy to some guy to rob you the second your car leaves the racetrack. There's gonna be six banditos and a Chevrolet and three machine guns, and they're gonna take your money. You you ain't never getting to that border alive. And now our girlfriends were saying, get, "Don't go. Yeah. This is not. We're dying for this." Yeah, and we start looking like uh, we start. We actually researched: could we get an armored car to go across the border with us? And they they told us, yeah, we can get an armored car, but we we're not allowed to take our guns with us. And we're like, oh, yeah, that, that's that's not they, a good they can, idea. All we, all we are is a they can do whatever. <laughs> they want to you down there it is mexico there are different rules they can make you disappear if they want to Brittany griner who is a basketball superstar just pleaded guilty to 10 years in prison for like a cbd pen or something so and, yeah. and this is a i forget which country she, she was arrested in uh i believe somewhere oh, sure. Russia, yeah, somewhere, and they got her for a, a CBD pen or maybe something that had a slight amount of weed, like literally a cartridge, and she's on trial yeah. as a political prisoner, just pleaded guilty. So, like, when you're in a country that does not value freedom and laws in the same way the United States does, there's a lot of leeway that that government has to be able to make you bend to their will, take your money, put you in jail, like make you disappear, things like that. So it's, I just want people to, to understand what, and this is Mexico in 1988. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was only worse back then. Yeah, it was a very scary moment. So, <clears throat> so the day of the race comes and 
we de- uh, we decide to just go down, Big Bernie, Dino, and I. We actually bring a suitcase because we're optimistic she's going to win. Um, she goes off that day at 3-1. to one. She was the second choice. She wasn't the favorite in the race, but she wasn't some long shot that day. Mm. She was very highly regarded. She also did something always unique. She was never headed by a racehorse. She would go to the front and try to so just say, catch me if you can. She would open up by three lengths, five mm. lengths, seven lengths, and just dare everybody to catch her and very very seldom good yeah know, good thing. i actually i so watched maybe, the uh i watched the race i just wanted to say i uh i i watched the the film of the derby and that's exactly what i was seeing that she just how you described it in the book she stays out in front the announcers are thinking that she's going to fade at some point people that know a lot about racing are probably expecting her to to you know lose some steam and she just keeps pumping like just stays out there you see you see a lot well, of yes and, and normally normally people right here go well don't tell me i won't you know want to ruin the book but you know this that really doesn't ruin the book because her her we'll talk about her race in a moment here her her race in the derby was not the culmination of this book it's many ways when the really dangerous, scary, crazy story yeah. really starts. So we drive down to Tijuana. If you can imagine, you know, um, <clears throat> Zach, you know, we were about your age at the time. We drive down there, three guys. We have the race doesn't go off to about six thirty p.m. Um, Pacific time. You know, we go down at two or three o'clock, and we're drinking margaritas and we're waiting around. Mm-hmm. And we're at this rinky-dinky racetrack in Tijuana and it's getting rowdy and it's getting, they're getting drunk and the mariachis are playing and it's rough. And there's guards running around with, you know, machine guns and, and carbines. And it's, it's something out of the wild West or, you know, the Westwood show that we watch. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So something straight out of Tijuana. Um, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they put her, they put her in the gate and she does, thank God, she breaks fantastic. She opens up by three lengths, by five lengths. And she had this unique ability. She was so athletic that she would always enter like the turns. Let's say she would enter the first turn. She'd be in front by two lengths. And she'd come out of the first turn in front by five lengths. And the reason is, and even Lucas and Gary Stevens, her famous jockey, said she was so athletic that she could accelerate in the turns when the other horses were spinning out and losing mm. speed, that didn't happen to her. So, so she's like a Formula One vehicle, basically. Turn, when, when the speed picks up, she yeah, gets more just, accurate around the turns. Yeah, it's like a dart. So t- turning into the far turn, and you can imagine now we're, we're watching this race on a little teeny, it's not like today with 70-inch color TV monitors. We're watching on a freaking little television. It was color um, in the... In, in Tijuana, we can barely see it because the TV is so small. And we see this big, ginormous gray filly go into the far turn in front by four and come out of the far turn in front by five or six. Mm. And we're screaming like, like you can't even comprehend, screaming our hearts out. And then all of a sudden, the two-year-old champion, 49er, the best two-year-old colt of the previous season who was highly regarded comes charging. And I'm telling you, this colt is coming like a friggin' freight train. And we've watched enough races that towards the end of the race, you can just perceptively see it. You saw it. She gets tired and she starts shortening stride and she starts diving in towards the rail. 
and she's almost bouncing off of the rail. She's hanging on. She's just exhausted. And this this cold 49er is coming for her. Mm. But I think the jockey on 49er made a mistake, and he was a brilliant jockey. But I think he tried to intimidate her. I think he tried to come in on her a little. And the fact is that I think if he would have stayed out in the middle of the racetrack, she wouldn't have seen him, and he would have gone right on by her. Mm. But she was so tough that as he came in on her and crowded her a little, I think he saw she saw him, and she just put her head down one last friggin' time, and she won by a photo finish. Mm. And we are uh, to this day. I mean, I, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. It was a, it was an amazing moment. Yeah, I I I cannot imagine what it feels like to have your bank account go up by two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a single two minute big, two minute race. Big Bernie and Big Bernie by a Big Bernie by another and million. by a million. Yeah, to to so, be surrounded by yeah. a, a guy you 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 win two fifty with your friend, another guy wins a million. You're watching it at a racetrack in Tijuana, and you know as, as you said, this is kind of where the the action, the the debacle, the turmoil begins. Yeah. So <clears throat> we wait. We say, all right, let's let it, you know, it's the derby's over. Let's let it calm down. Let's get some of the drunks and guys out of here. But not too many because we don't want to be in a, you know, all alone at a racetrack mm. with, you know, a million dollars on us. Um, by the way, we should mention they pay you there in American dollars in cash. They don't give you a check. They pay you in cash. So you can feel um, it. You, you feel the weight of of the bills the stacks well we're hoping we're hoping to feel the yeah. rates, the, the weight so we go up and we hand them our tickets and they go oh no es posible uh, no dinero today posible mañana and my my buddy dino is a really kind of a hothead he's mm -hmm. like he go he loses it he i think that he's going to get shot on the spot because he's screaming and yelling what do you mean i made my damn bet winning colors to win the derby she won the derby Pay me, you. I won't yeah. use the derogatory terms. Yeah. Mama uh, Guevo, something and, like that. <laughs> it was not yeah. good, and and they just tell us, "Sorry, we don't have that much money on us. You got to come back tomorrow." And then we're thinking, "Oh, I get it. Let's come back tomorrow when there's no witnesses." So at least in the Derby, there was you know ten thousand people there. You know, a lot of witnesses. They're less likely to shoot you when there's witnesses. Yeah. And we're thinking, oh, we'll come back at, you know, 10 a.m. on a Monday. That should be great, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. So we're bummed. I mean, you can imagine you go from this thinking you're rich to, oh, my God. And, you know, now we got to figure out what to do. So, you know, we, we put our tail between our legs and we make that long, long drive back up empty-handed uh, out of Tijuana figuring out, are these cartel guys going to pay us or are they not going to pay yeah. us? And from there, I, I won't tell I won't tell too much more of the story because I don't want to blow the story for people. Um, I will tell you, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, we're on a podcast right now, so people that like podcasts probably are like me. I'm a podcast junkie. Same. Um, and I love audio, and I love audio books. And my book is a really good audio book that's available on Apple and it's available on the Google Play Store and it's available yeah. on Audible. And I was fortunate enough to get the uh, Will Dameron, the narrator of the year for nonfiction from Audible. So yeah. It's a really good audiobook too. Yeah, yeah. The Winning Colors wins the Kentucky Derby. This is about halfway, maybe two thirds of the way 
through the book. And, you know, after that, uh, there's a lot of shit that goes down. But I wanted to take a step back now that we've done kind of the broad sweep of of leading up to that Derby win. I wanted to get into some of the finer details of what you were experiencing, what you were seeing. So if we go back to January of 1988, when you placed this 50 to 1 bet at Agua Caliente to win 250K, the road leading up to the racetrack is known as the road to hell and the road, road to, to hell, hell yeah. yes and i i've not spent uh much time at racetracks i've been to belmont a few times in long island uh but other than that you know i i've not been a regular i, I haven't i i don't i'm not really familiar with the vibe of tracks and so i wanted to ask you you know, to to take me back to Agua Caliente in 1988, like w- what did that track like smell like? What was the vibe? What did it look like? Yeah, like the people, it was, atmosphere? It's just a different world. It's a, it's like a third world country. And, you know, when you that it's only, you know, a mile or so, maybe a mi- little more, mile and a half from the border. But that mile and a half is, you know, everybody's trying to sell you everything you didn't know exists or trying to sell you, you know, Cocktails, drugs, leather underwear, lizards, everything you can imagine on the planet. And a lot of frightening things. Like I remember, I remember like just being in my car waiting to cross the border and some kid will come out of nowhere and jump on the hood of your car to wash your windshield. And that sounds fine, but you don't know whether that's a cartel guy about to rob you. With yeah, a machete, or that's a guy trying to clean your windshield. Yeah, you don't, you don't know if he's about um, to. Uh, you don't know if he's about to spray bullets or Windex. He just hops on the windshield. I know, and that's a problem too. Because when if you've ever crossed the border by automobile going back, there's could be really long lines. You could be in a long line of a mm. of a mile, a half mile, with you know a hundred or more cars in front of you, and of course you have cars to your left, cars to your right, and you feel very very vulnerable and you're always very aware you're not in the united states yeah you know you <laughs> you know you you're at their you're at, at their mercy really uh and um i'm six foot three blonde blue-eyed and you know i i don't look hispanic <laughs> I'm, yeah. Norwe- I'm a norwegian and i definitely kind of stood out there uh amongst that crowd yeah if you're hispanic i'm hispanic <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, we got we both got that uh that German uh hidden Hispanic gene. It's it's like it's silent. It's the silent yeah. Hispanic gene. Yeah. So yeah, I remember that remember that very very well. So how how did Agua Caliente compare to some of the other tracks that you've been to because I know you've been to tracks in in, in Central America, the Caribbean, the United States obviously. Like what what was what about Agua Caliente specifically stood out to you? Um, Agua Caliente really is it really is an amazing place, and if a photographer would love it. It's kind of like a a Mayan rune or something, and that it was really a spectacular place. It was really Las Vegas, and had legal gambling before Vegas even existed. Mm. And it, it, at one time, it was a place that allowed gambling and horse racing. But they had a spa and a springs, and they had um, a magnificent hotel, and rich people and mafia people, and from you know, the United States and from all over would come there to gamble and be treated really well. But uh, what happened, particularly right around about that time, is um, online uh, horse racing came into play. So 
In the old days, you could only bet physically at the track, but right about that same time, which is the demise of the racetrack, you could now go to Santa Anita and you could bet the New York races, mm. or you could go to you could go to in you know Santa Anita in Los Angeles and you could bet on races in Europe. <laughs> so suddenly people weren't going there anymore. So it was becoming run down and it was like a former palace that you know and now had cobwebs in the corner and it lost all of its luster. Mm. But still, you could see the bones of it. I'd still. You know, it'd be fun to go back sometime. I, I don't suspect it's gotten any better. Yeah, yeah, that that would be interesting to to go back. What would it be like thirty four forty years later, 30. something like that, almost? Um, yeah, it'd be about thirty four years later. Yeah, just to see you know what that track looked like, and you know, with the advent of online gambling, you can I I can place a bet right now during this podcast. I could look at my phone put in a pick for tonight's basketball game and then send it off. And there's not really that much effort on my part besides having the funds, uh, hopefully, to cover the losses. And, you know, back in the day, you had to do what you were doing, which is go to the location or go to the track, see the horses. You couldn't, uh, when you first started, bet live online and yeah what what drew you to gambling initially because it's it sounds like it's become a huge part of your life what was the thing that sunk the hooks in for gambling on sports and and gambling on horses um horse racing is you know we've had a lot of you know bad press lately with Bob Baffert, the Kentucky Derby famous trainer being suspended and deaths at Sanity and the like. But it is the most amazing, most beautiful sport to me in the world. When you have those gorgeous horses in, in silks charging to the finish line, being outdoor, it's, it's, there's just nothing, there's nothing like it in the world. And people that You'll never, you'll never get that from watching it on TV. You may tune in NBC and see the ladies in hats and the big production on Millionaire's Row and Kentucky Derby and go, isn't that might be fun. But when you're there, and if you've never stood next to a 1,200-pound thoroughbred who's in perfect shape and ready to run, and you get right up to them, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And at that time, it was even better because... When you would go, there'd be 30,000, 40,000 people there. You would get dressed up. We had to wear a coat and a tie to get into the turf club. Mm. And the, the girls would be all dressed up in beautiful dresses and hats. And, it, you know, much of the time it was really in a, a social event. And it was exciting. And, and now it's, it's cool that you can pull out your phone and you can bet on any race in the United States. But it's not the same as being there and, you know, experiencing it in person. And, you know, some things are gained, but many things are lost. And uh, I think horse racing has really suffered because of it. But it's still a great thing to do if you can get out to a, to a racetrack one day. I mean, the first time I ever went, I was 14 years mm-hmm. old. And as soon as I saw it, that was it. I was I was hooked. I said, how long has this been going on? And I would, you know, people used to say, you know, how, how, lo- how often do you go to the track? And we go, well, not as much as we used to. Now, now we only go when it's open. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. we loved it. Uh, when I went, I sailed on a sailboat to Panama uh, when I was 21. Uh, mm. And when I got to Panama, I had no money. And I got on a on a bus by myself. Again, I'm six foot three Norwegian guy on a bus full of Panamanian, you know, Latin people. And I went to the racetrack by myself there. 
uh, to experience it. You know, it was, I was just a bit, I've always been a bit of an adventure and a lot of crazy shit happens to me because I probably have very poor judgment. We, uh, we're the, we're, we can be the same in that aspect. There, there are a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of exciting things come out of poor judgment. The, the poor judgment is just the start of something that can unfold and, and incredibly fun and, and can change your life. So I think probably the 80, 20% rule is good to have 80% of the time, have good judgment 20% of the time, you know, just, just roll the dice, see what happens. Keep it interesting. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a quote that I love. You open the show with a quote, there's a quote that I love it, which is says that an adventure is seldom enjoyable during the adventure, mm. <laughs> which is something that people don't realize, yeah. you know, that makes great stories, you know, having beers with your buddies afterwards, but at the time it may not have been that much fun. Yeah. Have have yeah. you ever read about the endurance expedition with Ernest Shackleton it was down Sha- to Antarctica? I've read it. I've, I've read it four times. I've listened to the audiobook three times. Oh my yeah. God. I, it's speaking of adventures, speaking of adventures and expeditions, you know, that has to be the epitome of going through an absolute shit show of a time with 27 guys stranded in Antarctica. You're this is a hundred years ago. No one can help you. Your boat's crushed. Just like all the atrocities that they went to went through in this book, and then finally making it out and telling people about what happened, telling them the story and and being able to look back on that. And, and to to the person who's hearing about it, you're probably like, oh, yeah, like that's a you know, that sounds like a, a terrible time, but I'm glad you made it out. And then there's also Shackleton and the crew members that are living through it and, and like experiencing what it feels like to get through a a challenge where most people are probably like everyone except Shackleton had to be thinking like, we're going to die. Like this is just, this is an absurd situation. Yeah. And then finally got them out of it. It was, it was a, I, I finished the book a few months ago. It was, it's something that I think about whenever I'm feeling bad for myself. Like when I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, like, you know, yeah, you know, I, sure. uh, yeah. I, I, I got a bunch of meetings today or, you know, that workout didn't go how I wanted all this stuff. And I'm like, there's a, uh, 27 guys who got stranded in Antarctica, their boat got crushed and they made it back with essentially a few rafts and killing seals and were stranded at sea for 18 months. So I'm like, my day is not that bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I wanted to get into your friend Dino a little bit because he's, he's also an essential part of the story, a, a very interesting character. And one of my favorite lines in the book is when you guys, are, you're on a, a less than excellent streak of betting at this point. And Dino says, we, we are the opposite of counterfeiters. They turn worthless paper into money. We take money and turn it into worthless paper. Can you, des- <laughs> can you describe Dino uh, as a friend, as a gambler? Uh, just tell people a little bit about what he's like and, and why he's so important to the story. Well, Dino is, is a real guy. He's the best gambler I've ever met. And we're really, really the Oscar and Felix, the odd couple. Mm. It was always a problem because, you know, I'd be up late cocktailing and he'd be in his room studying charts and analytical data of trying to uncover a good bet. And, you know, uh, and he is, he was more the quant. He's not the, the, the definitely yeah. the quant, definitely the quant. Definitely the brains of the operation it was really, it was definitely him that came up with the, 
with the with the idea for the bet, it was him who took me to Tijuana because if you told Dino that the odds were twelve to one in Vegas and fifty to one in Tijuana, but they were a um, hundred to one in the Ukraine in the middle of the war, yeah. he would have been on the next plane to Ukraine in order to get the better odds. It's, that's just his DNA. Always, 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 you know, get the edge. Yeah. The- and when he sees something <laughs> good, he was always willing, always willing to go for it. And the funny thing is, he's like, he's kind of like really cautious. I mean, you know, he's, he wouldn't cross the street if there were only five seconds left on the green timing light. It's really cautious in everything he does, except for gambling. When he sees an opportunity, you know, if he has $10,000 to his name and he sees something that he thinks is a real opportunity, he'll bet the 10000 on it. Yeah. You know, he's unique that way, but he he doesn't always win. He's, he's a guy that's not always looking to try to win the easy bets. He's a guy that figures out how to cash really, really big odds. And that was really yeah. his forte. Um, and it was a fun time. I remember going to Vegas with him because now when you go to Vegas, everything is bet paramutually in horse racing. So mm. you bet your money, they take out 20% and everything else will return to the gamble. So the track or the, or the casino has no risk. They, they're going to get a flat percentage of, for accepting your bet. Wait, so but the, the casino back, in Vegas gets a percentage of your bet no matter what? Well, just like at the, just like at the track, like at the racetrack, if you go in and you you bet a hundred dollars on a horse, they keep twenty percent and they return eighty. You know, they keep twenty dollars and they return eighty dollars to the winning whoever has the winning tickets on all the other horses. That's the way the parent uh, okay. works. Ah, okay, But it. when we were there back in 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 the day, <laughs> um, the track would actually book your bet. So if you if, you know if you made a thousand dollar bet and you lost, they kept the thousand dollars. But if you won and at ten to one, they paid you out. You know, ten thousand bucks. And he was a well-known big player there. We would go to um, we would go to Caesar's Palace. It's in the book, and they would comp us. We would go to the unbelievable restaurant there, and we could have any champagne, any wine, entrees, anything we wanted was there because he was such a big gambler. It was it was quite an experience. Mm. You know, we lived we lived like kings. Sometimes we won, many times we didn't, but we always lived like kings. Yeah, I've I've been in Vegas a few times where I was with college friends who had family members who were comped because they gamble so much, and I caught myself just. You know, I'm enamored by the the hotel rooms and the Venetian and all this stuff. And they send drinks up to the room because, you know, my friend's uncle spends a certain amount of money there yeah. per year. And I'm not even the one who's receiving it on a, you know, a daily or yeah. monthly basis. I'm just a friend. So I can't imagine the there must be something that Vegas has worked out where they say, all right, this is ultimately going to lead to a long term gain for us. So let's just like kind of yeah. throw the all casino. these rooms. Rooms, let's, the cas- yeah, the casino hosts, you know, want their job is to get big players there. You yeah, know? you know, Dino and I would go to Vegas and you know we'd play the horses for two days, but we, you know, we we'd be there with you know ten grand or something. So it was worth, you know, they wanted our business. It was it was the best I've ever felt losing in a like probably you know four or five hundred bucks in college, like the most I could afford to lose at that time. And I was like, wow, this feels pretty good to be in a bathroom in a comped hotel room. I could see why people come back because it's uh, there's so much kind of elegance and distraction. And there is something nice about 
being in a luxury setting, even when you're losing money. It's like yeah. well, I, the Vegas, I, you know, yeah, the Vegas, the Vegas, you know, now is not the Vegas of the 70s and in the, in the early 80s. What was different about it the back Vegas then? then? Well, <clears throat> there there were a few classy hotels. There was Caesar's Palace um, and <clears throat> a few hotels like that. But by far, there was much more. It was not nearly... You didn't have Wolfgang Puck restaurants in these restaurants. And you still had, quite frankly, you had a lot of mafia influence and uh, different kind of owners that were in these places. And it was rough. Um, like today, you know, I could take my wife to any one of 30 casinos and we could, you know, get a reservation and an elegant meal and she could get a massage. And, and the whole time you were there, you know, you, you felt safe and security. And back then it was a while. It wasn't, it wasn't Tijuana. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't Agua Caliente, but it was a, a rougher element. Um, and it was much, then it was much more about gambling. The people that were there were there to gamble. Mm. And the casino hosts were there to take care of the gamblers and get people that wanted to potentially lose a lot of money, take care of them and entice them to continue to come back. And it was lawless. You know, there was, there were, you know, they were hookers and there was, you know, mob guys around yeah. and, uh, you know, there might be sawdust on the floors, but the, the, the cocktails were strong and the gambling was wild. And, you know, you were there to gamble. It was a different yeah. kind of animal than it is today. Vegas now is, I don't know, it reminds me more of Disneyland than the Vegas of back then. It's like, you know, when you go to like the, you go to Paris, you go to, when you're Disneyland and you go to one of these places and you, you, they try to make it look like that's where you are, but yeah. that's not where you are. Yeah, when you add the frills, it attracts a different type of clientele. And the the closest thing that I have to compare this to is my dad's a huge Met fan. He brought me to games at Shea Stadium before it became the parking lot of City Field. And Shea Stadium was just, you know, it was a ballpark. It was bare bones. You go to your seat, you buy a hot dog and a beer uh, before the game starts, and then you, you watch nine innings of a ball game and then when city field came around and i started going to more games with my dad and with some other friends there are people that go to the games that are indifferent to baseball or maybe don't even like baseball just because there's so many other distractions around the stadium well, that's 80 percent of 80% of the people in Las Vegas don't gamble anymore. That's the reason they yeah. have to make their money on rooms and hotel rooms and shows and all that stuff, which is fine. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic when you, when you add in the extra things to it. You're, you're getting people to show up to a place, but they're not actually participating in what the place is known for. There's all, there's like this secondary tertiary market for all these things that people spend money on like the food, the drinks, the shows, the entertainment, like all these things that have nothing to do with gambling and nothing to do with if baseball. You want to know what it's, do you want to know today, get a taste of what it was like then? Um, there's, I go every year now to Vegas with my sons for March Madness. Mm. We don't go to the March Madness tournament where the ball game's being played. We go to Vegas because that opening weekend, there's going to be 64 games, right? And it's going to be wild. <laughs> mm. Or 64 teams. And so we go for the first four days and it's mostly men and there's action from nine in the morning until nine at night. 
and the guys are there to bet on the games and root for their teams and drink their drinks. And it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's, I would say March Madness. So, you know, if I took my wife to March Madness and she saw a bunch of guys standing there for 14 hours yelling at a basketball game, she would go, this this not fun. But that's what they're there for. And that's what it's like. It's a different. Yeah, I, I prefer to be in an atmosphere where people are locked in on the thing that's happening, whether it's being at the table, whether it's watching the baseball game, because it's like when you invite your friend to watch a movie, something exciting's happening. And you, you look over and your friend's looking down at their phone like they missed the last 20 minutes. And even though you've seen everything that happened in the movie, it takes the wind out of the experience because you're like, no one else gives a shit about this. But when you're in an atmosphere where people are all in on what's happening right in front of them, there's no distractions. It just for me, at least that's like the the more exciting vibe, the more uh just like in the moment, this is what we're doing right now. The rest of the world fades into the background. Yeah, in the in the moment. I will say this: one thing about one thing that is different now and maybe similar. Um, you know, you live in New York, where sports gambling is legal, and you can bet on all the football games and the baseball games, mm. and the basketball games on your phone. And young people are betting on the games, but they're not just betting on the games. They're betting on how many points will Kevin Durant score. How many touchdowns uh, will Tom Brady throw? How many interceptions will Josh Allen throw? And those people, when they're watching a game, they might be looking at their phone and they might be sitting on their couch, but they're fully engaged. They're fully, yeah. fully excited mm -hmm. on it. Now, maybe the maybe the one thing that's lost is that most of those bets they don't really give a damn who wins the yeah. game. They only yeah. care whether or not they whether or not they they, they win their prop bet on it, but it makes it a lot more fun. And I think that's why sports betting is here to stay and will really take over the young generation. Yeah. No. And they won't, they won't be watching just, just the game. They'll be watching their bets on their phone while they're watching the game. Yeah. You have a line in the book that goes, uh, to buy a betting ticket on a horse for the minutes of that race, the gambler owns that horse's performance as well as a potential gain, uh, as, as well as the potential to gain the joy or profit of experience uh, or, or experience the sting of the loss, excuse me. So to the potential to gain the joy yeah. of profit or experience the sting of the loss. And there is a beautiful aspect to betting on a sport. And, I, and I've never had as much money uh, as five grand riding on the outcome of a single event. But I have had like I've said, I've, I've thrown 30, I've thrown a uh, hundred bucks, 150 bucks on a game. And just having that money on the line gives me that extra shot of adrenaline. I'll, you know, I'll scream, I'll stick around to the very end of the game. I'll, I, I all this extra energy is injected into the sport. And that's something that it, it seems like that gets lost when people talk about the pros and cons of gambling, because people will focus on the money being exchanged, money lost or won, uh, the addiction aspect to gambling. But there's there is an energy that enters your body and that enters your your mind where you have something to lose. And all of a sudden that clicks and you're like, OK, the Utah Jazz are up by four and I've never watched a jazz game in my life. But right now I'm on the edge of my seat because I could win beers for the weekend right here. Like, let's fucking go. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So there is a magical aspect mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, and so and it's here to stay, yeah. and it'll 
would become very, very prevalent. So th- there's the there's the notion that a lot of gamblers will gamble until they lose because feeling the loss is what gamblers are truly after. Like the winning isn't enough. They want to feel the loss. Is, has that ever been something that you flirted with like almost that self-destructive aspect or have you seen anyone kind of go down that road with gambling yeah i've heard that theory that people like to lose and that's the reason that they gamble i think you know you just cannot use broad strokes on anything like gambling and i like to use the analogy of drinking right Mm. um the fact is that and i don't know the percentages but you know i'd assume that 90 percent or 95 percent of the average people can work all day go home have you know one or two or three beers or a glass of wine or two at dinner and they're done and they enjoy it and you know in 98 percent of the time they have it under control young people do things to excess they're learning they're wild the young males have high levels of testosterone and takes over their <laughs> they stop thinking but you know, for the most part, most people can drink and handle it and it's enjoyable for them. But there's, you know, 10% of the population that can't handle liquor and it, it takes them in a bad place and they shouldn't drink. And it seems, I have kind of noticed that people that have addictive behaviors often have addictive behaviors across the board. I'm seeing some of the people that I know that, that might have had gambling problems also appear to have drinking problems. I think gambling is less addictive than than drinking and that I think that you know the vast majority of people can go to Las Vegas and say I have $500 and I'm going to play blackjack or slots or whatever and they go and when they're done losing their money maybe they lose another 100 or 200 they didn't plan on but it doesn't change their life and they have a good time and it's all good um but yeah there's 5% of people that don't know when to stop and you know I don't think we have to get rid of alcohol because a small percentage of the population can't handle it. I don't think we have to get rid of gambling because a small percentage of the population can't handle it. Um, I can tell you myself, having been active in gambling for 50 years, when I was young, and I mean really young, maybe in 18, 19, 20, 21, I would go to the track and I would lose more than I could afford to lose. And it would really hurt. And then I Mm. would say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I'm I'm done yet. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done gambling. And then I'd be back the next weekend. Um, but it was actually yeah. good that I, I learned that feeling at a young age because I learned it. I didn't have children. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have a mortgage. So I wasn't hurting anybody but myself. I was okay. So I'm kind of glad that I, that, you know, I, was, <laughs> I, just, I tell my sons who grew up, you know, at the racetrack, you know, if you're going to be a stupid gambler and, and you have to learn, I'd rather you learn it now. Uh, when you're in college, and the only difference is you got to eat, you know, top ramen for three days, but you, yeah. you're not hurting anybody. You're not hurting your your family or your children or the like. What What is so, that feeling? What is that thing that makes you come back when you know you can't afford to lose? It's that you think you're going to win. I don't think they go back because they go, man, I really want to feel that horrible steam feeling that I'm a moron and I lost all yeah. my money. It's because they think, yeah, I was just unlucky that time. I, I think this time is going to be different. It's probably very irrational or is irrational. Is it like an escapism? Like, if you want to ask me... An escapism? You want to ask me it? what I do not want to do? I do not want to go to any gambling event with somebody who cannot handle gambling. Hmm. It's miserable. I've seen it. I've seen it. Somebody goes to the goes to Vegas with me and 
He says, okay, I brought 1200 bucks. That's all I have for the weekend. And you're there and he loses in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. And like now he's walking around like the saddest guy, like his dog died because he has nothing to do and he's got to borrow money from his friends. And that sucks. By yeah. the way, you don't want to go anywhere with somebody who's an alcoholic either. And, you know, you're, you're at a bar and then after, you know, 40 minutes, he's sloppy and, you know, getting slapped by girls. You, you don't want that either. Yeah. I, I just think there's some people have an addictive personality. Some people don't. Um, I, I think the vast majority of people handle gambling yeah. far better than they handle alcohol. Yeah, and that that behavior, that attitude of knowing how to act and how to behave in a, a casino and, and not blowing $1,200 in the first 20 minutes, that's a nuanced aspect of gambling. And it's something that's involved in all those underworld activities that people lump in together, like drugs, gambling, strip clubs, things like that. And when you're doing something that falls into that dark underworld, there is an etiquette. And I, I say dark underworld, like the things that are off limited, addictive activities that people don't like to talk about the nuances of it's either good or it's either bad and if it's bad it's bad stay the hell away but there there is an etiquette to being in a casino there's an etiquette to knowing how to lose money uh knowing how to be in a in a strip club knowing how to you know smoke weed or, or drink alcohol like it's a for the people who are not uh, suffering from addiction, there is a learning process in order to how to engage with that thing that whether it's the drug, the, the practice, the energy of feeling like, okay, this is what it's like to lose. Uh, this is this is what it's like to win. This is how you talk to people at a table. This is how you interact with the dealer, all, all these intricate aspects of it that when I go to a casino and I've, you know, I've been to Vegas four or five times, you know, I've been to some local casinos but like that uh as someone who does podcasting that interaction is so interesting to me like how people act at a table what 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 people like to say you know things like how, how you tell the difference between a seasoned gambler and someone like me who just walks up to a blackjack table like all those ins and outs that don't really get spoken about can, too much yeah i can walk i can walk around a casino and not gamble I'm not really a big table gambler. I don't have any edge there, and I, I know it. Um, but I can go there and have a cocktail and watch people gamble and the characters for hours on hours. It's fascinating. Yeah. And it's even better now because there's a lot of a lot of pretty girls to watch, too, which I wasn't always there. There you go. When I was your age there. Yeah, so you know, it's fun. It's, the people watching couldn't be better uh, than at a casino. Uh, racetrack is a pretty colorful place, too, uh, to be. One of the things interesting about a racetrack is it's the only place I know where the richest people and the poorest people in that in, in, in the world will all be engaged in the same activity day after day after day. Mm. You'll have a bum at the racetrack betting his you know um, disability money and standing there next to the Queen of England who owns horses and Sheikh Mohammed Maktoum, the richest you know oil sheik, will have horses. And they'll all be screaming at the television, rooting for a horse. Yeah. Now, you know, the, the shake the shake may own the horse, but for that moment, the, the guy with the disability check was the two dollars to win on him. Feels like he owns that horse too. And it's that's a very unusual thing to have such a dichotomy of people all at one place. That's one thing I love about racetracks. Anytime I would take 
my sons to the racetrack, um, you know, we probably would go up to the turf club and have a private table and order lunch. Yeah. But I always, always left. I said, let's go down to the to the grandstand. And I would teach him what to do. I would say, all right, you have your wallet, right? Where is it? I said, it's in my back pocket. I said, not anymore. Put it in your front pocket. Put your hand over your front pocket. Mm. Now, let's go down here and let's walk around and let's look at these people. And then when I would, with my sons, I would, if I would see a guy, I could, I could look in a second and see a degenerate gambler because he was making bets and he'd be, he'd be making too many bets, too many different racetracks. Is there a vibe to it? Is there a vibe to a degenerate gambler? Like if you didn't see his bets, what does that person look like? I could tell tell almost, almost immediately. And I would say, I would say to my son, let's just watch this guy for 10 minutes. Let's watch what he does. And you know, is it, does does he study the racing point? Is he making lots? Is he making too many bets? Is he drinking too much? Is he not focused? Is he all over the place? You know, people that are I tell you the gamblers that I worry about, and I think I see this a lot um, with young people in sports betting are people that are betting on too many events every day. Mm. Like if you tell me. If you were to tell me, Zach, you said, you know, I, I love the Mets. I study the Mets. I know about their pitchers. I know who's good about who. I know the yeah. left-handers versus the right-handers. And I, and and when I see an opportunity, you know, I bet $1,000 on my team or the other team or on that pitcher. I go, great. You know what? You might have a real chance. You might You probably know a lot more about the Mets than the guy who made the line on that game. You yeah. got a shot to win. You sure as hell got a chance to break even. But if I see you up in the morning betting on Formula One and I see in the afternoon betting on baseball and I see you at night betting on, you know, hockey and then I see you later on betting on ping pong, I know that you are going to get your ass kicked. Yeah. As soon as I see somebody that's, that thinks that they have an edge on, they think they're friggin' experts on six different sports that they haven't studied and they don't follow at all. Good gamblers. I consider myself a good gambler. People think that, oh, Mark, you wrote a book. He's a professional gambler or was a professional gambler. You could go to Vegas with me and I could be at a casino for three days and maybe bet for an hour just for fun. I'd probably go to the crap table and get a cocktail with my buddies and throw the dice for yeah. half an hour. It just wouldn't particularly interest me at all. But suddenly I could be there. Um, the biggest bet that I've made in a month is... When Kevin Durant notified he wanted to be traded, I looked around and I said, where do I think he's most likely to go? Mm. And I thought it was I thought it was Phoenix. Hasn't happened. He hasn't gone anywhere yet. I could be wrong. But I went out and I made a substantial bet on Phoenix to win the world title. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I won't. But, you know, I'm, at the time I got, I think, six, six and a half to one. I don't have to be right every time. I have to I have to win one out of seven times to break even yeah. on that bet. But then I'll I'll come back and you know if I have a five thousand dollar ticket on it, people go, oh man, he's a crazy wild gambler. And I go, no, I'm not. I just I follow that sport and I think I potentially might have a little bit of an edge there. I'm not going to get killed. And by the way, I know that that's going to be a fun bet. Yeah. Because I now bet on something on a sporting event that's going to be decided next you know you know next summer. And I'm going to get to root for that team and have a rooting interest. They're going to make the playoffs. That's going to, I'm going to have a lot of action for my money. That's the kind of bet that I would bet big on. So, you know, it's okay. You, 
But if you're betting on everything and spreading it all around, you, you're going to get killed. You're going to lose. Yeah, the, I I noticed the same thing. I I uh, spent my college years living in a baseball house with a bunch of guys. We all played together, and we're all degenerates in some aspect. That's a disclaimer. So sure. I'm not really I'm not judging the degeneracy of other guys. But the sign that I first realized about guys who became, you know, slipping down that slope of degenerate gambling, it was not the amount that they were betting, but the patterns and on which sports they were betting, the frequency of the betting. And I remember that there were guys who started out, we would all bet together. We would, we would bet in March Madness. We would bet on big football games. It was an event when we got together and threw money down like it was all you know we were waiting for that two weeks or or month whatever it was and and like we really felt it when we bet it it was all of us coming together and then there would be some guys that would break off and they you know they'd lose one of the big bets and then they start throwing bets on uh women's tennis in siberia where they would wake up like they'd throw in a bet at midnight there's a tennis match at 3 a.m four thousand miles away they know nothing yeah they know nothing about it no chance yeah they they have no chance to win they know nothing about it by the way and you 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 one of my favorite oh yeah go ahead go ahead one of my favorite one of my favorite favorite stories is there's two guys in the car and they're driving to the racetrack and you know they're all excited and pumped up with the anticipation of having a day at the track and the one guy looks at you know his buddy and he says gee jim i sure hope i break even today i really need the money yeah that's how you know so but yeah it's uh in my small experience with uh hanging out with other guys betting on sports and placing a small amount of bets myself the guys who kind of fell into like i'm worried a little bit about this guy was you know those those 4 a.m bets where they're just throwing in a bet before bed because they want to wake up to a win or maybe they won't even be able to to sleep that night because they've they've thrown in a bunch of bets and they're worried about whether it's going to hit in the morning it, it was the it was not the amount yeah. of money they were placing on a single bet it was sure. how it was spread across racquetball ping pong basketball table like like just just wild shit where they're just like i'll just take a chance throw on this guy in turkey and know nothing about it and I'll, i'm just trying to win 50 bucks exactly yeah. just, that's when i hear that I, I don't take them seriously anymore and i no longer i know if they have an opinion i just want to bet against yeah. it that's all i know so something i was thinking about when i was reading the book is the way that people treat stock investors versus gamblers and something that i've done myself is i've invested in bitcoin and to me when i was doing all this research when i was listening to people on podcasts reading articles putting money in a, a cryptocurrency that i could afford to lose um and it's taken a dive recently but like that is a bet that's that's the definition of a bet i i am taking knowledge that i have but no matter how much knowledge i have i'm I'm still leaving it up to chance it could it could go to zero it could go to a million that is something that i knew before i placed the bet but when you take something like sports people don't really give the same leeway like this person is investing in a horse or this person's investing in this game because they've acquired a huge sum of knowledge and, and not you know I, I i would guess that the large majority of betters do not 
approach betting with the same knowledge base and the same strategy and effort that you do. But for the guys who do, like yourself, it does seem more like an investment and should be treated along the same lines as someone who researches a company and decides to put $10,000 in a company. It could all go to shit. It could it could go to zero. It could double. It, it could go to 100K. Same thing with a bet. Like you could win. You could not. You could break even. And there's research and there, there is something involved in it. So I, I was just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the investing versus gambling and why people, uh, why there seems to be such a negative connotation for placing money on sports as opposed to placing money on a company or a cryptocurrency, something like that. Yeah, I, I think there's very few professional gamblers, people that really take it seriously, people that keep records, people that know what they're good at, what they're bad at. And that's okay because the you know the vast majority of people are just trying to have a little bit of fun, and particularly with sports betting, I, I've actually I, I don't really bet a lot of money in horse racing anymore because it's very very difficult. Horse racing, the, the commission, the, the vig that's taken out of an average horse racing bet depends. Like if you, if you make a win bet, it's like fifteen and a half percent, but if you bet a trifecta, it could be twenty three percent. You know, on average, you're probably going to pay a commission somewhere between sixteen and twenty two percent. You really, it's extremely difficult mm. to overcome that level of takeout. Very, very, very difficult. However, sports betting is the best deal on the planet. People don't realize how little the, the sports books really make in taking a bet. In that, you know, if the average sports better, you can bet on, you know, Tampa Bay to win or lose, you know, plus or minus the points. And you pay a 5% commission. You pay a 10% commission when you lose and a and no commission when you win. It's 5% because it's a 50-50 proposition. And really, a chimp should be able to pick 50% winners. It's mm. a 50-50 deal, right? Just flip a coin on either side. And for that, you know, they got to take your money. They got to they got to put up a line. They can be wrong. They got to worry about sharp betters going after them. They deserve their 5% commission. So, you know, if you come out that, if you go out on a weekend and, you know, you go out and you bet $100 on 10 football games, you bet $1,000, the commission you paid is only $50 mm. out of $1,000 worth of wagers. Wow. Think about That's that. That's insane. They're entitled to that. And it's really quite fair. So I, it, it's a lot easier. You can overcome that 5% a lot easier than you can overcome it in mm. horse racing. But, you know, most people don't even think about it. They don't even know. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I think you're going to see a lot more semi-professional sports bettors yeah. that have a chance to win. Yeah. Than, you, than you're ever going to see yeah. on track. So I, I wanted to get into some of the the fear you may have felt in that period between when you placed the bet and before you tried to collect, but uh, before Winning Colors won the Kentucky Derby. And funny enough, Marilyn Manson's autobiography is called The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. So going back to the, the road to hell with Agua Caliente, uh, Marilyn Manson says this about paranoia. He says, I I've always been paranoid about the police because even when I'm not doing anything illegal, I'm thinking about doing something illegal. And <laughs> and you guys were you, you weren't doing anything illegal, but there's definitely a paranoia there about what could go down uh, if someone did something illegal towards you guys. Uh what was the most fearful or paranoid moment that you experienced in the aftermath of the bets leading up to the Kentucky Derby? 
Um, one thing that I remember at the time was, I don't know if I was more afraid of winning the bet or more afraid of losing the bet. Because if I lost the bet, I knew that it was still a great bet. I mean, I was getting 51 on a horse that went off at 3-1, to one, the chance of a lifetime. Um, I knew that it was a magnificent bet. And if I could, if I could make that bet every day of my life, I'd be, you know, a billionaire. Mm. But I knew that if she won, that suddenly a whole lot of things came into play, like trying to pick up a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars from the Mexican cartel and getting across the border yeah. alive. So, you know, that was a very, um, that's one thing that I really remember about it. And, you know, much of the time, it was all a hypothetical fear. I mean, when I when you went to Tijuana, yeah, there's some da- some danger, but you know, three thousand Americans went to Tijuana every day and went to the racetrack and bet and made it out of there fine. And if you weren't too stupid or you know doing crazy risky things, you're probably going to be just fine. So I really knew that I was potentially at risk, really only after if she were to win the race. Mm. So once that happened, then it became very very real yeah um and i think we were the most scared the most frightened was after she won the race and we were not paid and we knew that we had to go back to collect our money and the first time we knew that we were going to try to collect at a time when there's ten thousand people at the racetrack because it's kentucky derby day and it's the biggest day of the year at the racetrack Mm. but we knowing that we were going to have to go back and go back alone i think going into the bowels of that racetrack getting duffel bags full of money. Mm. I mean, if you can imagine getting $250,000, mostly in 20s, it's about six backpacks. It's yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a large amount of money. <laughs> it's a large volume yeah. of money. And then taking these backpacks and getting to our car at the racetrack when there's nobody there was a very frightening moment. And then, you know, when you see the guards around you with their rifles, I don't know if... I, they're more likely to help me or they're more likely to rob me. Um, you, you don't know who the good guys are. You don't know who the bad guys are. Are the, are the owners of the racetracks the guys that are setting you up to get robbed the second you pull your car out of the driveway? Yeah. So I would say, you know, that, that moment from walking into the racetrack after the derby, picking up a quarter million dollars in six large backpacks, getting to my car, uh, and then, you know, hightailing it for the border, those are yeah. some of the most intense moments yeah. that I re- remember out of the thing. It's funny. I I was kind of stupid in one way. I I always I did a little bit of of car racing in, my, in at that time, and I was a really good driver, and I had a really fast car. But I was kind of stupid. Yeah, it's a really fast car, but it's not going to outrun a submachine gun from six guys from eighteen feet. Yeah, you know. Um, I don't know. Have you ever seen but, uh, Fast and you know, Furious? You can uh, just drift yeah, and dodge work. the bullets. Yeah, they're yeah. much better. <laughs> Much better at it than I am. So that's that's what I really, really, really remember the most. Yeah. So so speaking of the the good guys versus the bad guys and not knowing who is who, the I, I wanted to ask you about the El Gato murder. This is April twentieth, a few weeks before the the Kentucky Derby. And so before I ask you about it, I want to just set what happened and set the timeline and feel free to to correct me at any point, but I just wanted to make sure I get this right for the conversation and for the listeners. So a few weeks before the Kentucky Derby, this is back in 88, Felix Miranda, aka El Gato, a Mexican journalist, was gunned down on the way to work in Tijuana. The two gunmen worked at Agua Caliente racetrack, and at the time, many people thought 
and continue to think that the owner of the track, uh, Jorge Hank Roan, ordered the hit. Elgato would make fun of Roan in the newspaper. He would call him out for not being a Tijuana local, uh, like poke fun at him, like no threats or anything like that. But Elgato made it clear that like he was not a fan of Roan. And then the paper that uh, Miranda wrote at, Elgato, Zeta, ran this headline after Elgato's death for a very long time. Like many, I, I believe it was a few years, every single day they, they had a headline they, that said- They still- They still do? They still run it. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So so this is the headline. It says, Jorge Hank. It says, Jorge Hank Roan, why did your bodyguards assassinate me? And that's, you know, printed across the page. Uh, and there's, like you said, there's there's also some pretty damning evidence of Roan being connected to cartel activity. Um, and and if that timeline sounds correct, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when El Gato was murdered, this is a few weeks before you would possibly have to collect $250,000 from a racetrack owned by a guy who allegedly ordered this hit. What was running through your mind when you saw the, when the news came out that the, this journalist was was gunned down? The connection to the racetrack, Jorge Roan, people, you know, the the newspaper was directly calling him out for it, saying, "Why'd you kill our journalist?" Like, and you're about to have to go down and say, like, you owe me two hundred fifty thousand to this guy. What was running through your head at the time? Well, first of all, Zach, you recap that perfectly, and it. One thing, people hear this story and they, they think, oh, you know, what a crazy gambling story or whatever. The guy makes this crap up. It's not. And this, this is a nonfiction book and it's footnoted. And believe me, I didn't, I didn't want to state a single thing that would, could piss off somebody as powerful as this man. I, I researched it. I only put in things that I knew to be fact that had been you know, published in the paper and very, you know. <laughs> and this Elgato wasn't just a journalist. He was the most famous journalist in all of Tijuana. Hmm. He wrote a, a column called uh, A Little Something. And it was he's kind of like a combination, like almost like a Dear Abby, but also maybe like a TMZ. He he wrote about all, whatever the, the fanciest, richest people did in Mexico. Where did they go to dinner? Where did they had a big, giant boxing match? Who was at the boxing match? Um, and he traveled with these, you know, these rich cartel guys. But he was freaking fearless, man. Mm. This guy would call out these guys and say, you know, yeah, they're 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 rich and they donated a hundred thousand dollars to the charity. God bless them. But where did they get that money? Because they yeah. suspected that he's a drug dealer. And he was writing some very aggressive things about the owner of the racetrack. And uh, about two a mo- two months earlier. Um, El Gato, the journalist, uh, his office was machine gunned from the street. and He survived the machine gun attack on his office. And of course, everybody told El Gato, the journalist, stop writing about him. You're going to get killed. Don't write about these cartel guys. And he kept doing it. He, he, he amped up what he was writing. And after the San Anita Derby, where I mentioned in, in California, where she won that race, that's when um, El Gato, the journalist, was, was murdered. And it became not a little story. This was, you know, picked up in the San Diego papers. And Zeta was a fearless newspaper. And by the way, I think they've had like a dozen journalists that have been executed. Was writing negative stories about the owner of the racetrack. And then he was shotgunned to death in broad daylight. And the guys that were arrested for the death were the head of security for his racetrack. 
yeah. and his personal bodyguard. So, and we knew this. We knew this story. So we knew who we were dealing with. So, you know, that's why I think that I was fortunate enough to do so well with my book because, you know, it's a it's a book that crosses into history and it crosses into horse racing and it crosses into sports history. And it also has, you know, the female against the boys angle but really where it came really big is in true crime because the true crime sells a lot of mm. books and this is a you know well-documented well you know footnoted book talking about what went on in that time and if you if you like the tv show narcos which i was mesmerized by on netflix you'd probably like to yeah C could you could you describe what like was there a specific motion emotion or thought any preparations that were running through you when you read those headlines in Los Angeles when you were, you know, you're, you're hundreds, yeah, you're hundreds of miles away. Like what were you thinking? Yeah. Like your stomach drops out of you. You're not, you're not hungry yeah. and you're scared and you're nervous and you can't sleep. And, and all of those, all of those things, although, you know, we kept thinking, Jesus, this is really bad. And, and our girlfriends knew about it, but also we knew that <laughs> it's really only an issue if we win. Yeah. So we only, you know, it only, that's when it really got frightening is, you know, after she won. And then there was a, a week yeah. in there that was, uh, you know, hard to, hard to sleep. I, I had a, uh, an eye-opening dark moment, like almost like a, it was so dark. It was hilarious preparing for this podcast because I was doing some background on Elgato just to make sure I had the timeline correct and I didn't have the book in front of me so I searched in Google Mexican journalists gunned down like cartel and about 45 stories pop up as recent as three weeks ago and I'm like you you forget uh you know I'm living in New York um uh, you know being involved in media in a country where you can say generally whatever you want and no one's going to knock on your door and spray you down. Like that, that was an eye opening moment for me where I'm like, th there's a country literally bordering the United States where journalists are getting gunned down on a regular basis in 2022 for saying things against the cartel or saying things against people with cartel connections and government and not particularly like you're, I'm not talking about the uh like the anderson coopers of mexico there were people that were working for relatively small newspapers that i saw were gunned down um brutally murdered for saying something that you know wasn't even that bad most people wouldn't consider it a threat or anything like that like just a problem pointing out something that may have happened and that person gets shot in their car before work or, or shot in their house something like that yeah um you know, I, I, I love podcasts, sports podcasts, sports gambling podcasts. Like Bill Simmons is the, you know, the most famous guy out there. Uh, mm. And I listen to his podcast and they talk about, you know, their big bets and everything. And <laughs> I thought to myself, or a lot of gamblers, they tell me like, oh man, I had $3,000 on the Knicks last night. And I'm like, dude, until you have to collect quarter million dollars from the Felix Ariana drug control yeah. cartel in fucking Tijuana. Don't 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 tell me about being scared about a bet. Yeah, because you know I have to be careful. A lot of people won't even. That's one of the reasons I had to write the book. First of all, I had to write. I had to wait a long time because I didn't want to piss people off. Um, and the second thing is, I just had to tell the story because it had been burning a hole in me for a long, long time. Mm. Yeah. So 
I hope I hope it becomes a book. I mean, a movie. Uh, when when I wrote the book, and I was a first time author. I've only written one book, and I actually got it. I live in L.A., so everybody around me is a, a movie guy. Um, I actually got it optioned by some pretty well known Hollywood people, and then the um, pandemic came and it didn't happen. And I'm hoping that you know. At some point in time, I think it would make one heck of a movie, and I hope that it, you know it gets picked yeah. up. Yeah, I, ho- I hope the ball gets rolling on that again post pandemic. That would that would make for an exciting film. Who who would you? Uh, who's your number one choice to play you if you could pick? Well, I can't. It would be, and I'd be. Uh, I know who I'd have play Dino, the guy from uh, War Dogs. Uh, sorry, Miles Teller, Jonah or Jonah Hill. Uh, Jonah, Jonah Hill. Hill. I want don't Jonah Hill to Jonah Hill. I love the movie War Dogs. I want him to play Dino. By the way, Miles Teller would be, love Miles Teller. He would be perfect uh, for this role, for sure. Maybe a guy, who's the guy that from, um, you know, it's kind of like a buddy cop movie in some ways, too. So any guys that would be good in a role like, you know, like that would be good. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg's done a bunch of those. Uh, I mean, my- Wahlberg would be, I, yeah. I would love Wal- Wahlberg would be edgy enough to pull it off, you know. Wahlberg would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually uh, go, going back to just like the danger at the time with the Jorge Ron and the the murder of El Gato. I actually came across a report from 1999 uh, that was recently released. It was by the National Drug Intelligence Agency. Uh, it's a conglomeration of an effort by the FBI, U.S. Customs Service, CIA, Interpol. Uh, and a few other smaller organizations, but the the support was originally written in 1999, was released to the public a few years ago, and it says intelligence agencies uh, about Jorge Ron quote intercepted conversations of the Hank family coordinating drug shipments at TMM, a giant owned shipping company, and personally meeting with drug kingpins. Case information indicates that Jorge Hank Roan launders money, distributes cocaine, and meets with prominent drug traffickers through his businesses, the report said. Jorge is more openly criminal than either his father or his brother and is regarded as ruthless, dangerous, and prone to violence against his enemies. And that's the, the what it's uh, just kind of the just an insight into how dangerous the situation actually was with anyone who Jorge Roan got in his sights. Yeah. Um, in regards to the guys who assassinated El Gato, um, are you, are you aware that they were released from prison in 2015? Yes. Does that, does that make you scared at all? Like having the book out there, just like the talking about the, the two guys. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, (laughs) it's, it's a, uh, you know, as as long as you don't go down to Mexico, I I feel like uh, things should be probably good. Okay. Yeah, pro- yeah, probably okay. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to go back. I'm not sure I want to go back to Alec yeah. Kelly. Yeah, soon. but but I mean, like, yeah, the 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 book is out there. It's it's a great book, and it's also uh, you know, the, these two guys are in it, so it's it's a it's a bold a bold thing to do, and and I'm glad it's out there from. A reader perspective but also um you know just having these two guys just out and about also must be a little bit nerve-wracking not not to harp on that but it's just something i came across looking at the the whole thing with elgato that went down must you know kind of be 
frightening to think about at times. Yeah, I try not to. Yeah. Well, you're you're uh you're you're safe. You're safe. I, I'm not gonna you know bring uh bring them on the podcast. Like I just Skype them in. I'm like, hey, these are the <laughs> yeah. these two guys. Here's uh Victoriano <laughs> Medina and uh Antonio. Uh, yeah. Here you go. We're here with yeah. uh, the author of the book. They they probably love the book. They no, probably I love the I'll, publicity. I'll. I'll I'll probably avoid. I'll just avoid that. Yeah. Just, just stay in my nice quiet life. Yeah. Um. So when uh go, go I wanted to just go back to uh the the gambling addiction conversation for a second. Have you have you had someone close to you that has succumbed to like gone down that slippery slope of of becoming a gambling addict and then kind of losing everything and then someone in personally i really haven't i really i really i really haven't you know i i've always you know i've been a professional in my career so it's like i'm not wasn't like i lived to gamble i was a semi-professional gambler a long long time yeah no i haven't really i haven't really seen that i'm sure it exists but i really have not had the experience yeah yeah no i uh when we were talking about addiction before it made me think about my own concept of addiction and how it's evolved because i came from a pretty athletic background constantly in sports and everything was always about discipline so i just assumed that if if you became a if you became addicted to something like gambling or like drugs that it it is pure willpower it is pure you know the reason you're addicted is because you're not working as hard somehow or because your willpower isn't as strong and as i began to learn more about addiction as as i began to kind of explore the nuances with people much smarter than me talking on podcasts and and writing books things along those lines i realized like how much of a genetic impact and 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 how much uh your genetics and your environment has on an addictive personality or like falling into that addiction with the the five percent of people that we were talking about before so i was i i've had a, a few friends that have um you know been addicted to certain things or, or substances so i was just wondering if there, there was anyone um that has been close to you with gambling but if not then that, that's you know that's a positive thing yeah yeah i really haven't seen it so I, I wanted to end off with a few, uh, you know, a, a few philosophical questions. Um, w- one of your inspirations for writing the book you mentioned is Seabiscuit by Lauren Hillenbrand. And there's a quote in Seabiscuit that goes, the racehorse by virtue of his awesome physical gifts freed the jockey from himself. When a horse and jockey flew over the track together, there were moments in which the man's mind well uh, wedded itself to the animal's body to form something greater than the sum of its parts that mind melding that mind wedding is that something that has been true for you and dino and, and friendships because it seems like you guys uh you know kind of uh the wor- i don't know what the word for it would be but uh performed or were in sync in a way where you both had each other's uh w- one strength was another was another one's weakness or you, when you guys together were greater the sum of their parts philosophically i think that you and it, well first of all anytime two people or more people go through some type of harrowing event that they have to overcome we'll always bond them mm. together Cer- certainly experience that I, I do think that you know in in a lot of friendships certainly in in maybe 
more romantic, which Dino and I are not romantic. Um, I always look at like couples. I can see some couples, and I, I always say, are they greater than the sum of the parts? Sometimes when you just see a, you can see a guy and a girl. I don't care, you know, what, what their references are, but if there's a guy and a girl, and, and sometimes they're together, they seem like they're happy and they bring out the best in each other, and they're more powerful together than they are apart. And that's a really strong relationship. And I think it applies even on a friendship mm. basis. If you have guys like Dino and I, you know, I think I took care of Dino and protected Dino and had some, you know, helped him travel and do things that maybe he couldn't have done as well on his own. But I, I had nowhere near the instincts or the even intuitions that he would have. And he's a far, far better gambler than, 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 yeah. than I ever was. So I, you know, I, shared experiences but yeah i think sometimes good friend good friends can you know like if you take two guys that just like to drink and party and put them together they probably aren't likely to be better together than they are apart mm. but you know you might take some guy that is really brilliant intellectually and then combine it with somebody that maybe is a little bit more practical and keeps them you know puts them in the right field or something they could be a lot more together than they are apart and i think that applied to dino yeah yeah i uh i think that's why me and my girlfriend seem to enjoy each other so much because she's a scientist that possesses actual intelligence and I run my mouth on podcasts. So the, uh, <laughs> the, my, my, my absence of, uh, any sort of, uh, PC and, you know, it, it kind of, uh, capacity for numbers and research and, and things like that is offset by her uh discipline with studies and it, and it goes together well so that it's something it's something that i have been becoming more and more aware of when i see relationships that work out both romantic and friendships like, there seems to be that sort of offsetting dynamic to one person being one way and the other person offsetting it yeah it can work and you mentioned seabiscuit i just want to say that is the great. That's my favorite book of all time. It's my favorite audio book of all time. She's a magnificent writer, and I, I, I truly, if if my book was twenty percent as good as Sea Biscuit, then then I would be thrilled. Mm. So you actually you interviewed Gary Stevens for the book, correct? The the jockey, Hall yeah. of Fame jockey yes. who rode Winning Colors. Did he? Was there was there something particularly? insightful that stuck with you that he said that maybe you didn't even include in the book so it wasn't just recounting the events but i'm just wondering from a guy that's won over five thousand races hall of famer won a lot of big races like something that he said that stood out to you that maybe a, like a life lesson something insightful where you're like yeah like well, that's that's seems he's just, truth he's just great he's very kind to me Jonas, with his time uh his wife was very very helpful and he, these jockeys and Gary specifically, I don't think they get enough credit for the bravery and the danger that they have to overcome. Uh, Gary Stevens, before writing Winning Colors, I don't remember exact numbers, maybe three years earlier, had been in a horrific, horrific accident to the point where his speech patterns, he's fine now, he's very articulate, he's a spokesperson on the television. Mm. I understand his speech patterns were affected. And he, you know, had broken many bones and he was hospital and everybody said he would probably never walk, you know, possibly ride against, maybe never walk again. And, you know, nine months later, he's back on a thoroughbred risking his life. These horses weigh, you know, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 pounds and they race at 40 miles an hour. Uh, and their hooves are 
you know, the size of your or size of your wrist. This is really a dangerous sport. Yeah. They clip heels, and these jockeys are tough, 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 tough group of guys. And I, they, I really admire, I really admire them. And uh, Gary, he told me one great story, and I, I thought I knew everything I'd researched. And in the book, he talks about when Winning Colors gets into the gate. Well, actually, and he was exercising Winning Colors, warming her up uh, before the race. He says he looked down and he noticed that there was a ladybug uh, on his silt, on his jersey. Mm. Didn't think anything of it. And then when he was in the gate waiting for the other jockeys uh, to load their horses, he looked down at his jersey. He noticed that the ladybug was still <laughs> on his jersey. And to, to think about it, here he is with a 1,200-pound animal about to run, you know, a million-dollar race, put his life on the line. And he remembers a ladybug on his jersey. That's how singularly focused he was and living in the moment yeah. that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the the little that I've learned so far about jockeys, it seems like the physical, mental, and emotional requirements that you need just to be on a horse at that level, let alone win a race like the the Kentucky Derby it seems absolutely insane like to almost the level uh I mean they're different but UFC I, I've I've been following UFC relatively closely the last couple of years and the way that those guys have to fluctuate and wait and take a physical beating you know jockeys are it seems like in a consistently emaciated state to be able to get on the horses at the weight that they do and you you are taking absolute beatings on animals that weigh well over a ton a tap going at 40 miles an hour can you know break your leg it can fuck up your spine like all these things that you have to go through as a jockey um did not expect to learn some of the things I did about the level of physical and mental punishment that they go through. And it doesn't get spoken about a lot, at least in, you know, mainstream uh, sports conversations. Yeah, I weigh 235 pounds and I wouldn't want to fight a 115 pound jockey. So I'm going to kick my ass. In incredible. Um, is, is gambling a net positive on society? Would you say everything that you've learned about gambling, <laughs> taking into account all the different types of personalities? I enjoy the shit out of gambling um, when I've done it. Even the, the losses, you get something out of it. it would you say for with what you've seen, with what you know, it's a net positive? For me, absolutely positively a net positive. And I would say, I don't know the percentages. I'm, I'm not a therapist or something. I, I would say that you know, probably 75% of people, it's probably a net positive, you know, maybe five or 10% of them, it's a horrific negative. And there's probably another 15% that are in some kind of gray area, yeah. <laughs> you know? So overall, I think it's a positive, it's a positive yeah. thing. It's, it's like saying alcoholism, alcohol is terrible and you shouldn't, you know, they've been drinking wine for centuries, right? For many people, it's a positive experience, but for somebody that's an alcoholic and destroyed their life, it's not. Yeah. So you know, I, just, I don't think you can, you can't judge it, judge it based on one person's bad experience or one person's good. But for me, it, it's been a very positive thing, something that I've enjoyed in my life. Yeah, yeah. It's for it seems like a huge part of life is figuring out the slice of reality that you best operate in and that is most fulfilling to you. And whether that involves gambling, 
drugs, alcohol, certain experiences, whatever it is, yes, there are a small percentage of people that cannot engage because they become addicted and their life derails due to genetics, environmental circumstances, things like that. But like for for almost everybody, it's like you're figuring out how to engage with these things and, and what amount works, what frequency works, how do I feel best, how, what makes me feel terrible, what makes me feel like shit, what, what do I want to repeat, all these things. So I kind of look at gambling like I, I would look at anything else, like drinking, you know, like when I'm young, I drink to excess when I'm 19 years old and and have some terrible mornings and I, I learn from that and then there's an etiquette that you learn to drinking and you go out and you speak to people and you don't make a fool of yourself and you can drink in a business setting a, a relaxed setting all these things you're learning the ins and outs of it um I, I it, it seems like the the same thing would apply to to gambling in that sense where you're just kind of operating in the slice of reality that works for you and you're not always going to win but you're going to get a net positive out of it even if you end up losing money in the long term like you could still say that the experience has been worth it and it hasn't derailed you in some way you didn't make money drinking but you might have enjoyed it you don't have to make money gambling yeah there you go it's an experience it just has has to be in control. Yeah. The the late great Norm McDonald says that they call gambling a disease, but it's only it's the only disease where you can win a bunch of money. So <laughs> Yeah, that's I can I can I can I can vouch for that. Yeah, 100%. And you know, you you vouch for it in in the book and again, I I enjoyed the shit out of it. Here it is again before we end off. The greatest gambling story ever told, a true tale of three gamblers, the Kentucky Derby and the Mexican cartel. Uh, I believe you can pick it up anywhere you buy books. So so Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, things like that. Um, is there is there anything else that you wanted to direct people towards? Website, links, things like that before we end well, up? They, 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 you really may enjoy it. I, I do have a, uh, a really, really good website uh, called MarkPaulAuthor.com. Mm. MarkPaulAuthor.com. It's one thing that I'm really proud of on there. I made a 58-second book trailer. And my book trailer, which is on the website, paulauthor.com, has been downloaded over 300,000 times. Oh, wow. And it's a really, really short, really, really fun book trailer. And also on the website, in addition to being able to order the book and all that good stuff, there's a uh, whole uh, section of photographs, a, a, a photo gallery. And you can see pictures of winning colors. You can see pictures of me. And you can see pictures of Agua Caliente and uh, a lot of the things from the time. If you're interested, you might you might really enjoy yeah. that. We'll put we'll put your podcast on that. And I'm sure people will enjoy that uh, as well. That's that that would be an honor. And you know, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. For people listening, watching this on YouTube, all that will be linked in the description. Go check it out. The the book, you know, tore through it again, and uh, th this conversation was an absolute blast. No, no other way I would like to spend a Thursday night in, in New York chatting about gambling and cartel, uh, some philosophy. Uh, th th this was uh, very exciting, and, and thank you again for your time. Thank you, Zach. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. See you, Mark.